SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 17 with guest Gert Drapers. Our guest today is Gert Drapers. Gert's an architect and development manager in the Visual Studio Team Edition for Database Professionals product, which is formerly known as Data Dude. So, welcome, Gert. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be happy to be there. <laughs> That's great. I, I, uh, I met you at um, the past conference in Munich last year, and uh, that was I really enjoyed your session. It was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I do actually remember it's when the first time when we uh, we actually started working on this project, and I couldn't tell you anything about it except for like wait for <laughs> it to be there. So yeah, we're in there. Fact, yeah, this 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 is sort of an interesting one. But uh, so listen anyway. What for for people who haven't come across you, if I get you to first up describe just how you ever got to be involved with SQL Server at all. Oh uh, well, that's that's a long story. Um, it actually <laughs> dates back to uh, 1988. Uh, at that time, I was working for a company called Ashton Tate, which you might remember is like uh, the D-base D-base three and yep. D-base four. Um, I was I was working there, and it's like one of the things I was working on was the D-base four server edition, and that was this uh, this tool that was supposed to be the client to something new called the uh, Microsoft Sybase Ashton Tate SQL Server for OS two. Um, <laughs> So my first introduction to SQL Server was this uh, brown box, which contained a bunch of dark brown manuals, the old-style Microsoft manuals, uh, some pre-release of OS2, a pre-release of Lad Manager, and a pre-release of SQL Server. And the only thing we sort of got was a white paper about client-server computing and an API for DB library. And that, that's what we received. Yeah. And that from there on went downhill with me. Um, <laughs> it has been SQL Server all my life after that. It's, so I continued to work for, uh, for Ashton Tate uh, till 1991, actually till the moment that Borland bought them. That, I had nothing to do with that, but it was a coincidence that at the same day we were having a board meeting. Um, when we got the call of, like, you guys are being bought by Borland and everybody run for their phone to b- call their stockbroker, that was the same day I actually resigned. So um, that was planned ahead of time, so I had no prior knowledge mm-hmm. to this, but it, uh, it's yes. a nice story. Um, so I joined Microsoft in 2001 to, uh, to actually start evangelizing SQL Server. Um, mm. And so my role was actually uh, it's like to evangelize Land Manager and SQL Server, but the only thing I knew was SQL Server. And yeah. Land Manager yeah. was sort of these necessities that uh, you needed to use to... Uh, to get connected to SQL Server. Uh, so I did that, and it's like in the first five years, I worked in, in a team called the Developer Relations Group. And my job was to uh, 
to help ISVs, independent software vendors, to actually uh, implement Microsoft technology. So Windows NT, mm -hmm. the Win32 API, SQL Server. Yeah. Um, so I did that for five years, and then I said, well, it's time to move uh, up and do something more interesting. So I joined the uh, SQL Server development team, mm -hmm. uh, where I became a developer. I worked on uh, conversion of 6.5 databases to 7.0 at that time. So I was, I was working on the on-page conversion from the 2K format to the 8K format, the uh, DBCC infrastructure around that, and... And while doing that, we actually came up with bulk inserts. That was my uh, my yeah. third area which I worked on. Um, so in, from there on, it's like I've been hip hopping between different jobs in SQL Server. Um, I took on a job in the tools team after that, responsible for uh, uh, SQL DMO and Query Analyzer. So I built mm -hmm. Query Analyzer in SQL Server 2000. Um, after which that, people, I people. People seem to love Query Analyzer still. Uh, they, they kind of yearn for the performance that it had, actually, even today. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, today it's still my uh, one of my primary tools, except uh, mm -hmm. together with File Manager. Mm -hmm. So if you look at my desktop, it's like the two old tools I always use is File Manager, which I copied from NT4, mm -hmm. and, and it's like <laughs> Query Analyzer. It's still there, yeah. it still works, and I, I still love it. Um, and so after that, I managed the SQL Server Tools team. Um, wasn't really uh, managing wasn't really my thing at that point in time. So I went back to be an architect. Uh, started working on the new version of uh, TTS, which is now called SSIS. Yes. Um, so I did that. Um, I also worked on the foundation for SMO, so the uh, instantiation classes and all the mm -hmm. infrastructure underneath that. Then I left for two years to work in the .NET team, where I did something called System.Transactions, which is a new programming model for transactional programming in .NET. Um, and in 2003, actually, I went back to SQL Server uh, yeah. <laughs> to uh, join Mark Sousa's team called the uh, SQL Server Customer Advisory Team. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was uh, doing when we met, I think, in, uh, in Munich. Yeah, uh, and they're heavily involved in large deployments. Yep. So our, yep. our mission there was to uh, to help customers implement the largest databases around the world, uh, the most challenging project. And, and actually, it was a great job. Uh, the only yeah. thing is, it's like you're never home. Yeah. <laughs> so that was. I, I know of the, that. Uh, I, know th I know that sort of job well. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, that actually uh, sort of forced me back into finding another position. Uh, because like I wanted to be home more, be with my three kids and my wife. So yeah. at that point in time, it's like an opportunity came up to start a new team inside Visual Studio that was going to build SQL Server developer tools. Mm -hmm. And that was like that was just that's the gig for me. So uh, I'm passionate about that. There's a huge opportunity to change the world uh, by providing better tooling for SQL Server database developers. Uh, yeah. So that's what I'm doing right now. It's, and it's outstanding news, yeah. I, I uh, was fortunate enough to be at a software design review for this product. Uh was one of the things covered back in May last year, and uh, I must admit I was very excited about it. Out of all the things I saw at the SDR, I thought uh, 
I thought this particular thing had had amazing potential. Uh, I must admit, some of the things that were discussed at the time, I notice, haven't quite appeared yet. But uh, maybe down the track, we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, look, I, I, yeah, I think it has an amazing potential to uh, to change how things are done. In several previous shows, I, I remember discussing with people. Uh, just, I, I think there are a lot of things that developers. Uh, take for granted, uh, like refactoring tools and things like that, that access to those sort of tools just hasn't really been available to database people in in, in a very easy-to-use way. And uh, I often wonder if part of the reluctance to, uh, com- to do some sort of continuous improvement in databases often is because the tools aren't up to it, is, is, do you think? Well, it, it's, uh, that's... Uh, Exactly what you just described is exactly the reason why we exist. And that's also, it confirms our findings that we have run into by just talking to DBAs or database developers. It's like today their tool set is a variety of small tools that they buy or download or build themselves. but nobody really provides them with the end-to-end integrated solution. Mm. And so if, if you really look at where, what we are doing, um, is providing um, a tool set for the database developer or the DBA that to manage their schema in a continuous fashion and to make it part of like the development lifecycle, which the other developers have been using for years. Yes. Um, if you go to a database developer today or a DBA or somebody responsible in the organization for the schema and ask them, it's like, hey, what is the truth? What, what is the latest version? What is the latest state? What was the state before that? Mm. And they will, most of the time, they point you to either the database. It's like, well, the production database is over there. That yeah. has the latest state. But is it the same as your test environment? Is it the same as your staging environment? Um, what are your developer referencing? I've been, one of the projects I was doing while uh, working in the customer advisory team, I was called in by an ISD, and they asked me, it's like, can you look at these performance problems? We have query performance problems. We just deployed to this bank in New York, and we have performance problems. I said, well, great, give me the schema and give me all the statistics so I can look at the query plans. And so they gave me what they thought was their production schema. And then there was a a consultant on site at the bank in New York, and he sent me a schema too. I said, so why are these five tables missing and these 12 indexes? Uh, Well, they they should not be missing. And it turned (laughs) out that it's like... Bad enough, it's like they had to restore one of their servers, and they yep. lost schema. Yeah, and that that's not the one and only real life example I have demonstrating this problem. Yeah. So it it there is a real need, that's for sure. Um, mm. The other thing is like which became very apparent is there is a reluctance to trust a tool. Yeah. I, you, there, there are attempts to automate this, but DBAs are skeptical by nature, I think rightfully so. So mm-hmm. they want to see what these tools are doing. 
they want to, they, they really only trust you, in my opinion, if you can give them a .SQL script and say, here, this is what we're going to deploy to your server. You yeah. can read it, you can tweak it, you can parameterize it. Um, if you don't like it, throw it away. But it's like, um, I think th there is a level of trust that needs to be established as well because these, this group of people have been deprived from a lot of tooling that can make their life a lot easier. Mm. And as I said, that, that's exactly what we're targeting with the uh, tool yeah. set that we just released. Yeah, so the actually it's quite interesting. As you say, they, they do tend to trust trust the script. It's one of the things when I've been discussing with the uh, Balaji and the SQL CLR uh, mm -hmm. people is that uh, the whole the, one of the things I struggle with in terms of the relationship between the developers and the DBAs is the is the sort of black box nature of assemblies at the moment as the unit of deployment. And uh, uh, when I look at a database script that involves um, an assembly by its nature at the moment, where you end up with a hexadecimal dump, basically, of the assembly. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think one of the things they need to move to is uh, something where the code is actually visible in the script rather than just the, uh, like a hex dump. But uh, anyway, I mean, that's along the same lines, but I, I think they, re they really want to be able to see those sort of things in the script. And, and I think, yeah, anything that you do that, that reeks of, Magic in the background won't won't go down well. It it needs to be something that translates quite directly to scripts. Yeah. So so one of the ch the the changes that we have been making to actually sort of not directly facilitate this because you could attack this exact problem in two ways. You could say it's like well I like to have server side compilation of assemblies, so that yep. the user really submits submits the the, the CLR the C-sharp or the VB.NET scripts. Mm. Um, you could theoretically build that in a very easy way. It's like I'm surprised nobody has done that in the community, actually. Um, yeah, look, actually, one okay. of the projects that I've had on the back burner is to build a, uh, a CLR compile uh, function, basically, that, yeah, take, takes uh, a little bit of source code and throws back out... Uh, uh, effectively, a, an assembly, <laughs> you know, as a hex dump. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's because what I look at with that, I, um, I I would love to have even gone simpler, where maybe a database had a a concept of a default assembly, and so if you could just say create function, some function name from CLR compile, you know, VB or C sharp comma, here's the code just for the function. I think that would be really really sweet. Um, and it could just be added to a default assembly for the uh, for the database. Yeah. And uh, I, I think I think that you would remove an amazing amount of fear by that because people could just see this little few line function and uh, and you know the C sharp or which, which VB would embed it. Visual Studio already by default Visual yeah. Studio already submits the whole source into the database anyhow. Yes. Yeah. All right. Oh. But anyway, that's so, we're getting off track. So. Tell us about the new product and what what the breadth of coverage is for it and what, what can it do? So, um, so we'll, we'll first start with the uh, very elaborate name that you already tried to pronounce when announcing the program. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we are a part of the uh, Team System suite, and our mm -hmm. product is called Visual Studio Team Edition for database professionals. That's why I say yep. that 20 times very fast. Um, so also known as the Data Dude Project. Um, mm. 
So just just a little story, uh, probably for amusement, because like a lot of people will ask us or ask me at least, like yeah. they think I'm the data dude. It's like, well, oh. I would like <laughs> to be, but really, the name came from our our senior VP Eric Rutter, who were in a meeting. We were discussing the fact that like Visual Studio is ignoring this large and important group of developers, database developer, mm. and. And he always wants to tag a name to something. And so we yeah. were looking for this name. It's like, well, who is this? It's like, well, he's the data dude. All right, okay. So from that <laughs> point on, it's like uh, this project was coined data dude. What we are delivering is in our first version is we, we looked around and we said, okay, what are we going to do? And everybody yelled at us like, you should be doing both. And we said, well, yes, that's true. From a developer perspective, they do want to see a modeling solution. But let's mm -hmm. look at what is fundamental in terms of developing your SQL Server application. And we always came back to, well, you need to have a handle on how to manage your schema. And so that's what we decided. It's like instead of building modeling first as an isolated thing, like sort mm. of like what Irwin does or ER Studio or all these other products out there. We want to get a handle first on how are we going to manage the schema that you would actually be modeling. So how yeah. are we going to manage your schema, changes on top of that schema? How are you going to version this? How are we going to deploy this? Are we going to give you tools to actually detect differences in schema versions between one server and your project or between two databases? Um, how are we allowing you to make changes onto this schema, like which we w are going to call refactoring? Um, mm. How are you going to test your schema? And it was, I was amazed to find how few people... Testing is not a big thing in the industry anyhow. Um, mm. But it's like not a lot of people actually like it. But if you look at most people are now doing some level of testing against their application. Yes. How many people are testing their database objects? Yeah. Not many. Not many. Um, Actually, Adam Adam Mechanic had a very good session at uh, the past conference in Dallas last year, where he was talking about his uh, the uh, the n unit t SQL equivalents mm -hmm. and uh, yep. and so on. But of course, there are significant challenges there. In fact, uh, one of the one of the things I think is most exciting about SQL Server 2005 that can probably help with this um, is database snapshots because uh, always getting the system back into a known state is always the, the difficulty with, with uh, unit testing procs and things like that. And I must admit it's, it's something I've been meaning to write up an article on, but uh, just the whole ability now to be able to quickly create a database snapshot, run a bunch of tests, and then restore from snapshot... I, I think that's just outstanding um, mm -hmm. because, because yeah, otherwise it's just often too difficult to, to deal with production size amounts of data and get back to a known state each test. Yeah, yeah so we actually approached that also from another angle, like that in combination with the database unit testing, we introduced another part of our product, which is the data, data generator. Um, mm -hmm. So we actually have a facility that allows you to generate meaningful test data. And when I say meaningful, I really mean meaningful in terms of we understand the relationships in your schema, 
We understand yep. your domain constraints, and we actually allow you to generate meaningful value, data values, but in a repeatable fashion. Mm. Um, so what that means is that you can create a data generation def definition that is actually repeatable. And because it's repeatable, now it's useful from a unit testing perspective. Yeah. Because now you could say, it's like, well, I have my schema. I'm deploying my schema to this test server. Now generate me a data set in size number X because you can vary the size in terms of rows or you can define how, how big the database needs to be. Yep. And then you can say, all right, now start running these unit tests against these. All right, and that way, it's like you're not just having a a set of unit tests, but you also have a representable test, a set of test data that mimics very closely to your production data without security concerns, without privacy concerns of that data. Yeah. But you do have a very close correspondence with the distribution of the data so actually, mm. your query plans are going to be very close, which is normally what the problem is with generated data. Yeah. Because like you can generate what we do, but hey, that this doesn't distribute the same as your production data. So your In query fact, plan might be way off. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because uh, one of the things I've I've often sat and looked at uh, is that whenever people are doing unit testing, by their nature, they tend to test the boundary conditions. Um, and and not so much the you know the standard conditions and mm -hmm. what had me intrigued I was sitting back thinking about old programming languages things like Simula and things years ago where um, one of the the things in Simula that I quite was interested in is that every time you got to a decision point like an if statement you could actually write the odds in there or the the uh, the likelihood of taking each of the branches. And mm -hmm. I, was st I was starting to think in terms of testing, what would be really interesting in terms of like load testing and so on, is if you could uh, maybe in an attribute-based way somehow define the uh, the relative distribution or something of the of the data that would occur in a test. But uh, anyway, mm -hmm. that's a that's a thing for another day. But uh, I just thought that would make it a very interesting adaptation where you could then push on to load testing as well. And you could actually start to to get the right proportions of the data, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so and still make sure you test boundaries. Hmm. Sorry. So we actually look at two dimensions. So we look at the ratio, purely the row count ratios between tables. So we understand what your what your table relationships are, and therefore we can defer what what ratios are. So we can say it's like, oh, it's like every order has on average ten order lines. So we, yep. we can defer that level of information. But at the column level, we actually abstract the histogram, the statistics histogram information from SQL Server. So we can mm -hmm. generate, we're trying to generate the same value distributions for that specific column um, according to the, the statistics information that we pulled from SQL Server. Yeah, that's so, outstanding. Yeah. So that way we actually, we, we are getting very, we're very close in terms of giving you a data set that has the relative distribution characteristics of your production data. Mm. And we're, we're, we're very close there for most data types. There are some data types that are a little bit challenging. For example, like <laughs> UDT or the, the old the CLR UDTs right now, is like we, we're still figuring out how to do this. And the XML yeah. data type, for example, is like a little bit more complex right now, so we're, yeah. we don't have that in CDB either. But 
Yeah. Um, and looks, you you may you may need to get the developers to help a bit. I mean, maybe when you build a UDT, you could apply an attribute or a something or a method or something that actually generates or or, or does what yeah. you want. Yeah. Yeah. We can. That, that's definitely possible. Yeah. Because so, I often think somebody generating the UDT is probably in a good position to build you what you need to be able to get sample data. Um, true. Uh, it's as long as they would have the notion of some distribution. Yeah. Um, at that point in time, it's like that would be very helpful. Yes. Hmm. That absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So in the product at the moment, so w- what are the main pillars of of DataDude or of the Visual Studio Team Edition for database professionals? So. So it all pivots around the database project. So, yes, there is a database project in Visual Studio today. It's like um, reality, nobody really uses that because it's just a container of files and connections. Yeah. Um, what, we, what we've created is a database project which really holds your whole schema as DDL fragments. Mm-hmm. So probably if you have a database today, you have a schema today. What you would do is like you would say is like well create a new project and reverse engineer your schema into this project. What will happen at that point in time is we're going to take every object inside your database and generate the smallest possible DDL fragment and store that as tiny .sql files into your project container. While we're doing this, we're actually parsing the, all the SQL statements. So we start to build an understanding about, hey, this is a table. It has a column. column has a name and a type. Um, but we're also looking into the body text of, for example, store procedures. So then we can start to do interesting things like, um, hey, you're referencing this table from this store procedure. And we actually know the real dependency, which SQL Server still doesn't know as of today, between objects. But we even know facts like you're assigning a column to a variable, and that variable is of a different type than your column definition. So that's the level of granularity that we have understanding into your schema because we actually completely parse your schema and understand up to the variable and data type definition what's going into that schema. Yeah. Actually, it's interesting. I, I did... I did put a suggestion up on the Ladybug site, uh, which came from uh, one of the students I had on a course a little while ago, and he was keen to see, uh, similar to what they have in Oracle apparently, the ability to declare a variable as of, instead of a specific type, declaring as it to a be of a, as a column. Yeah. Yep. Oh, man, I would love that feature. Mm. Um, actually, I think I've been bugging uh, a lot of the engine developers uh, that are responsible for this feature is like um, to do this. It's good. That, that is. <laughs> um, it's it's sometimes it's like because we were always involved with these customer projects. It's like we were running into these very, from their perspective, low end features, but high impact for the customer. Yes. It's like defining col- or defining parameters or variables as a column name. Yep. Uh, or as a column type, sorry. Um, simple things as create or replace, another yeah. construct which people really like. Um, 
So there are a bunch of these constructs uh, that, that we would like to uh, see actually in the engine. Um, Good. I'm glad, glad to hear you're keen on it. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, but it, it's uh, so once you have everything inside your project, that now becomes the center of truth. Everything pivots around the project. Um, so you can optionally put that on a source control, so you can actually start to version all your changes. Um, then we have tooling around this to start making changes. So one of the new tools is the refactoring tool. So we allow you to refactor your code. Now, there are different types of refactoring, and we're, we're far away from supporting all variations right now. Yeah. Um, but the main thing we, we will, will allow you to do right now is, for example, take a column uh, or a table or another object and start to rename this. Uh, so take, for example, a column. You have a column inside a table. This column is referenced inside a function, inside a view, inside a foreign key definition, inside another table. We will make these changes as an atomic change for you in an all-or-nothing fashion. So you, are, you can preview these changes. You can see it's like, okay, did we do the right thing? Did we identify the right places that you actually use this? We not by coincidence change the comment, which had the same name, or some constant string where you do, did something. Um, so that's a way that you can start to make changes in your schema. Um, revamp the complete T-SQL editor inside Visual Studio. For those of you who have used the T-SQL editor in Visual Studio, you know it's, well, I can bluntly say it deserves the label lame. Um, <laughs> it wasn't doing what people expected. It's like it didn't handle outputs very well. So we, we're bringing it on parity with the SSMS execution environment. So yep. it has um, a, a grid, it has outputs, it has the client statistics, it has all the bells and whistles the SSMS execution engine has, but truly now inside VS, which also has their advantages of like full binding with keyboard mapping, macro recording, um, full source code control integration, all these aspects are, of being inside VS are actually helping us as well. Um, mm. So then we are we're done with the editing. It's like we have this whole facility to do unit testing and data test data generation. That these are two other parts of our feature mm -hmm. of our feature set. Um, schema and data comparison are two other uh, features. And then of course, at the end of the day, you're done deploy or developing your schema. And the last two features that finish it off are build and deploy. Yeah. And what build will do is take all the information inside your project and build a .sql script. And that mm. .sql script is representing the creation of a new database, which is, of course, the easy approach. It yes. basically collects all the fragments from the projects and puts them in the right order, in the right dependency order, inside the script file. But we also allow you to say, well, I have this server over there with database X, Go update that and make sure that the schema is in sync with what I have in the project. So in that place, in that case, sorry, we're building an incremental update script for you. And that you can feed that into the deploy step. And the reason why these two things are disjoint is because there might be a security boundary between this. Right? Yeah. You might need different credentials. You might, might be a different person even that actually wants to deploy that script that you generated as part of build to that server. So, and then we're full circle. That's and nice. that's what we are about right now in V1. 
That's great. Well, listen, that's probably just a good point to just take a short break. All right. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. So, welcome back from the break. So, uh, first up, what I might get you to do, um, Gerd, is just tell us anything about uh, yourself or hobbies or things you're interested in. Um, well, yeah, where to start? Um, <laughs> probably the biggest hobby right now is called My Tree Kits. Uh, so Excellent. They, they, they take up all the time that it's uh, left, which is like, it's great, but they... Uh, they deserve a lot of attention. So I have twins mm-hmm. of uh, almost three now and a six-year-old, and uh, they uh, they consume a lot of time. Yeah, um, that's a handful. But, yeah. um, so, but if I'm not doing that, so actually I like to cook. Uh, so I spend a lot of time actually uh, cooking, preparing dinner, figuring out things. Um, going through my wine collection is then the next uh, mm-hmm. related uh, activity, which... Uh, of course, comes in handy if you like cooking. And then okay. I uh, like to make some music uh, every now and then. Although I don't really have much time to do that. But my kids so like what, it. Music? Well. What do you play? Um, so I used to play bass. Um, uh, but the problem is with bass is like if you're alone, it's like playing bass <laughs> is really lonely. It's like it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, so I used to play in a band... <laughs> I switched back to guitar actually after that, uh, but I, actually, I still want to go back to bass because that's where my roots are. That's what I like. And that's what I understand. Like, actually, I'm not good at at guitar, but um, and then I have some <laughs> keyboards that uh, that I play, um, but it's uh, it's just for my own entertainment. Nothing shocking actually. I want to pick for the uh, for the off the road band that uh, Don Box and the company plays in. So. Ah, oh, the band on the run. Yep, I the band on the run. It. Thank yeah, you for so correcting me. Yeah, yeah. And I was yeah. trying to think of what uh, Carl was calling it. Yeah, when uh, yes, he was talking about it on on .dot net rocks. They were talking about band on the run. So yeah, it's a uh, <laughs> indeed. So well, yeah, I wouldn't anyway, qualify for that. That's The what I'm what I'm interested in is uh, how effective. The object or the, uh, sorry, not object, I suppose, but column renaming and things are, is uh, because people are a bit coy about the use of things like SP depends and uh, things like that. So, because, you know, sort of ways to fool that and so on. But I'm just sort mm-hmm. of wondering how how effective is the, the renaming? So, um, well, actually, I can claim it's uh, 100% effective. Because Excellent. we we fully that's why we have to parse the the T-SQL ourselves. We don't mm-hmm. rely on sysdepends information. We don't rely on the fact that 
objects can be created out of order and therefore sysdependents will always be has the opportunity to be wrong because of deferred name yes. resolution. Um, so since we are parsing every object and we actually look inside the statement text of objects that are coming out of sys comments, like views and triggers and procedures and functions, um, yeah. we actually understand all relationships inside your schema. So within a database, uh, we are 100% right with regards to renaming the right thing. Even if you would have, if you would have a column C1 and a table C1, and you would rename the column, we will not rename the table C1, because we actually mm. know the context that this is a column C1 and not a table C1. Yeah. Right. So we actually know that level of difference. It's it's not a blunt search replace inside some functions. Actually, the, re, the, the rename refactoring goes beyond what you can do inside uh, your project. So we also allow you to host your script files inside our project container. We can actually, if you indicate that your script file, uh, the the look or the sorry, actually the the context of that script file is that user database, we could easily refactor or want to refactor into that script. And we'll tell yeah. you, it's like inside the script, you have a select statement that is referencing this column. Do you want to update this? We are going to refactor mm. it into your data definition files. We're going to refactor this into your unit test. Um, so this is just a preview of where we're going, because you can imagine that down the road, we can actually say, it's like, ah, you're making a change in, in this column definition? This mm -hmm. affects your application code. And we can actually yeah. push that to the yeah. other side of the house, saying, hey, Mr. Application Developer, we have a schema change for you that you need to pick up. Yeah. And that's what, like, what the future is going to look like. Well, actually, that's interesting, because one of the things that was raised on one of the news groups uh, the other day I was on, uh, they were talking about the fact that e even if you do this, where you've then got an issue is if, for example, people have CLR based procs or things in assemblies and so on uh, again they'll typically have names of objects in there and uh, yeah again the ability to find and replace those uh, will be a challenge um, the the other one that I was sort of looking at I, I sat and watched with a lot of interest uh, with Pablo Castro on the guys um, at the ADO Three or ADO.NET three or whatever the, uh, the the numbering will be, but uh, the mm -hmm. the next version of that where they put a video up on Channel Nine the other day and they were talking about their mapping layer, uh, yep. which seemed to live in XML configuration files outside the database, and I'm sort of wondering if if you've got things like column mappings and things like that occurring at another layer outside there, then of course that's another challenge. Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, exactly the, right. And it's like we're, we're yeah. actually, yeah. Uh, we we just started uh, working with uh, Pablo and and his colleagues uh, mm. to work on how EDM integration should be uh, dealt with from a schema change perspective. Yes. <laughs> so because like they are mapping uh, entities to classes, and the classes are being used by the application developers, and entities to storage. 
which is the mapping between the entity and the underlying database. So we know about changes inside the database, so it's for us, it's very trivial to actually push that into the entity layer, which then could reflect into a change in the class definition. Uh, so mm. we're actually uh, actively talking about how that problem should get resolved. And we are completely aware of that, that this is the next thing for us that we need to start looking at and um, yeah. start bringing that to life. And yes, we're, we're there. Well, what, what intrigued me is that they, one of the arguments they were making for having a mapping layer outside the database. I, I must admit I, I was struck by the thought that 99% of what they were talking about doing could have been done inside the database rather than in a mapping layer, except when it traversed multiple databases. And what, what sort of had me intrigued is they were saying, well, look, if the, underlying, if the DBA went in and changed all these things, then we wouldn't have to change the application because we could change the mapping layer. But I kept thinking... But you've then got the DBA making change in one spot, and you've got somebody else potentially responsible for the mapping layer. And I kept thinking, you know, if that if that mapping had been done via procs or views or things like that inside the database, then the one person making the change would actually have the whole view of the change. And that that made me a little nervous. I, I've been meaning to, I, I, I'm hoping to get down and uh, sit and have a chat to Pablo while he's at, hopefully he'll be a tech head, but. Uh, just I, I'd, I'd like to see what his thinking is there. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not exactly uh, sure what the uh, what the answer there is on, on that that specific mm. question. Um, I, I do think what ultimately will happen is like it can be in such a way that there's this one person that sits on the whole change. Um, the biggest problem is right now. Even if you take that to today's technology, right, strongly mm. like data, data sets, right, you already have the problem over here right now in fact, with, with that technology in terms of the dependency of a definition file, your XSD, right, yep. that you use to generate your classes from, which needs to match with your definite or your, uh, your class or your, sorry, your table definitions inside the database. Right, so yeah. the, these technologies, it's like there is already a fair amount of these disconnects. And, and really, if, if you look at, if you want to support that inside the development lifecycle, uh, this is one person, because it's like that's the person doing everything on his notebook or on his mm. own machine yeah. and, and controlling the end-to-end scenario, or it's the development team with the five different responsibilities Right, mm. that support that scenario needs to be supported from an end-to-end perspective, not just as yeah. like this is one piece of the puzzle. And that's yeah. what we're really trying to do inside Visual Studio Team System, is piecing all these links together, so you can no matter if this is a single person or if this is a three-person or three roles responsibility, that you can actually seamlessly bridge these inside the development lifecycle. Yeah. What, what I was sort of thinking, though, is that e- even today, a lot of the problem with a type data set and having the XSD is the fact that it's tied to tables, where if there was an abstraction layer that, like stored props of views, what, whatever it is, in, at the top end of the database level, and that's what the uh, type data set was sort of tied to, then you wouldn't have the dependencies on the tables and 
someone underneath. I mean, you could literally change you, all you those without them. changing. You would have one extra level of indirection. Yes. Right. As as which, we commonly say here, is like we solve this yeah. problem by adding one like uh, layer of indirection. <laughs> I was just thinking in the places where they already, you know, the only where people don't have direct access to tables, they only have access via stored procs and views. Then I'm thinking mm -hmm. that you know they don't tend to have that problem anyway. Because the thing is, you could change the structure of the table and, and in many ways, often not affect the proc or not affect the view. So, uh, true to a certain degree, but it it mm. it's, it tends to become the same problem as interface versioning. Yeah. Right. It's like oh, yeah, com complex at a, at a certain point, it's like depending on where you want to make the change, you will have a problem somewhere. Yeah. And the question <laughs> is, like, do you have a process to actually? Do this in a structured fashion. So we mm. we sort of thought about it's like so what what are, what would be the next step in refactoring, right? It's like so we can do rename refactoring. Um, we'll certainly start thinking about type refactoring, for example, which is another obvious one. But then you're getting into well, is normalization or denormalization or splitting tables are these refactors? Yeah. Yes, they are. All right. Yes. So at that point in time, you also are starting to deal with okay. If I'm going to take a table and I'm going to split it up into two tables, am I automatically going to generate a view that takes the place of the original table as a facility, a fallback facility for the application so it doesn't break? Yeah. Right. And so that, that's the type of strategies that we're trying to think through right now in terms of like what is next, what are we going to do after this? What are, what are the yeah. approaches that we're going to uh, put in place uh, for people to do this actually in a safe way? Because like if we start to think about, okay, we're going to provide them with an easy mechanism to say, all right, take this table, split it in two. This is the key, so duplicate the key, make sure that the links are there. Are we going to generate this old-style view that represents the old world? So if there were references to the old object, they don't immediately have to go and be fixed up. Yeah. And and I suppose more than that, where you've got procs and things, I mean, that might require some quite intricate changes to the procs themselves. Yep. And, yeah, it's, and it's how automated can you make that, yeah. Hmm. yeah. And that's where refactoring yeah, no. becomes really interesting. <laughs> Big challenges. That, that's good. And so what about testing? Yep. So how far does the testing go in the product? Sorry, can you repeat that? I was wondering how, how far you have got with facilitating testing in this version. So testing, we can basically test every schema object in, in, inside the environment. Uh, so you, you basically can make two choices. Um, so we, we, we've been going back and forth saying, okay, so how do we want to do database testing, unit testing? Um, so there is one class of users that says, like, I'm only, my only language that I understand is the SQL. And that's, the, that's what I live, and that's what I understand, and that's what I'm comfortable with. So we made very sure that we delivered an environment where this user can create his unit test. So we allow them to fully write a suite of unit tests um, in only by only using T SQL. 
by writing test assertions, server-side test assertions, by, at that point, two-point-and-click client-side assertions, he can actually set up a whole test environment for his procs. So we generate the skeleton frameworks for procs, triggers, functions. But he can also test inserts and updates and deletes if he wants to. Right? Because it's mm-hmm. just T-SQL and there are just assertions about what the result of the statement should be. We even have assertions about things like we anticipate that this statement returns in X number of milliseconds. So you can even have performance assertions in there. Performance are oh, wonderful. Uh, yeah. So you can actually say, it's like, hey, wow, this store procedure is like, this really has to run within five milliseconds. All right, so if it doesn't meet that bar, all right, the test will fail. Um, mm. Now, the test infrastructure is an extension on top of the existing enterprise uh, testing infrastructure that's in Visual Studio Team System, which is a C-sharp or VB.net environment. So for those users who are familiar with that, they can actually take it one step further and say, all right, I'm going to deep dive also in the source code that's least there because we, you can actually dive into the source code that we generate for the unit tests and start to do the additional work there. You can make the unit test environment completely data-driven that's a standard feature of the unit testing environment. And you yeah. can fan it out to multiple test servers. So it's, it's a very complete uh, database unit testing environment. The things that we are, like where we wanted to do more, but we simply don't have time, is by putting in more test assertions. So right yeah. now we have very simple test assertions like, all right, it, it, the return code of this proc should be X. The output variable should be Y. Um, it should return 10 rows. Um, mm-hmm. we, we wanted to do things like, all right, go validate that the result set that you sent is actually this result set. So we want to do a data comparison between result sets. That's something we couldn't do for this release. Um, but well, if what somebody about schema-wise? Can you say, when I call this proc, you know, can you say, look, these are the columns that I should get back? Yes. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, yeah not just the number of rows or the, yeah. Yeah. So Good. these are just, the, at that point in time, these are the these are assertions that you put on the output parameters. Mm-hmm. Right? And no, it's like that's, that's, that's what you can do. It's like as, soon, as, as long as it's in the, in the singleton area, uh, we're able to, cope with it right now. We don't do a great job uh, in handling the result set, although you could actually do that yourself if you're yep. proficient in, uh, in in C-sharp or VB.net. One of yeah, the things we correct. might do if, if, if we have some extra time is to do a checksum assertion. So we actually say, it's like, the checksum of this result set or this row that you get back is X, and we can validate mm-hmm. the checksum. Uh, that, that's one of the things we, we are looking into. Um, so what about... So, but what about that? I was going to say, what about build and deployment then as to what what you think you'll get in the product for that? So build and deploy really takes all the entries... Well, build does. So what build does, it actually takes all the fragments that we have inside the project and constructs them into a deployment script. 
there is the notion of pre- and post-deployment scripts that you can manually insert in there. Um, that's also the places where you can store your securities, like adding logins, for example, or adding users to the database. Um, and granting permissions at the end is like that's something you could do in a pre- and post-deployment script. Um, what Build does, it really constructs the the creation of your schema objects and builds this single script that you then can go run against a database or against a server to create the database or to update the database. Uh, so creation is, is fairly simple. It understands things like all the set options, collation options, full text options, all that. All these intrinsic yeah. SQL Server aspects are supported. So you don't longer have to worry about, are my set options consistent? Right? Yeah. If you specify your set options at the project level, we make sure that all your set options get propagated consistently across the whole script. Um, the same for collisions. It's like if your collision is specified at the project level, it's like, and you don't overwrite them at the table or at the column level or in your selects, mm -hmm. um, there's no need to ever change them. We'll make sure that they are the same. Um, and then if you do an incremental update, we actually add construction time off the build script. We are actually comparing with the target server with its current state and building the diff script on the fly making sure yeah. that the goal is to get in sync with the information that you have in the project. Now, you make two, take two approaches there. You can say, like, I really want to be in sync, which also means it's like objects that I don't have in my project should get removed. Um, that is not the default. Right, the default is, it's like, here we have our objects. If they exist, they need to get, uh, get altered into the new state. If they don't exist, they need to get created. Um, yeah. Existing objects don't drop if they're not inside the project. Um, mm. But you could choose that option if you really want the sync option. And then we have the schema differ, of course, which is nothing more than with diff on steroids for schema objects. Um, that allows you to visualize, are these databases really in sync? Are they reflecting the same schema state? Um, mm. And so that's how these all these pieces fit together. That's magic. Well, look, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing all this. I, I, I did uh, manage to see a, a short webcast on it that Maraid uh, did the other week, which was uh, very interesting uh, and, and certainly got a lot of us excited about it. So um, so what have you got coming up? So you're going to talk about this at TechEd. So at TechEd, uh, so that's really next week already. It's like yes. we're going to uh, have our real public appearance uh, we're going to be in the major keynotes for, I don't know how many minutes, this is measured in minutes. Uh, and then we are in another couple of sessions. We're in the Dave Campbell session who's going to talk about the database vision, with the data vision from Microsoft, which we are part of that. And then we have our own sessions uh, that's going to talk about this product in the various stages, um, I think in four different sessions. And we, we are available to uh, talk to people uh, at the booths and People can come and grab a CD or download the CD. So that, that's, the, that's what's really coming uh, in the first week. Um, what we are doing at the development team level right now is like, um, we, right now we're in a stabilization stage. So we're, we're the next four weeks, 
we're really working on stabilizing, fixing problems, and we will yeah. re-release the CTP at that point in time. So after four or five weeks, there will be new CTP. Uh, then mm -hmm. we're going back to additional feature work. And we're the one of the reasons why we do it this way is that we're releasing the CTP, and we really want input from the users. So we yeah. instead of keep going and doing all the, the bug fixing and stabilization at the end, we do it in the middle, and we try to stay at a high-quality stable bar. So we also yeah. have time to take feedback from the users saying, well, you guys have this backwards. It's like, this is not how I work. <laughs> what about this feature? So we can actually at least have a shot in incorporating this. Um, yeah. So that's why we, we will have a very frequent number of CTPs. It's like there are quite a number to come, actually. And then if everything goes well and according to plan at the end of this year, uh, it should be available for everybody to use as a, in its final form. Um, which is one of the main attractions for me to join this team. It's like, as I wrote in my blog, mm. it's like I started mm. in this team July 1st, 2005. We started developing September 1st, and we will be done this year. And we will have a Excellent. V1 product <laughs> from scratch in nine months, really, because like the real yeah. development started in January. So yes. that's the exciting part, and it's like we will be busy, uh, which is good. We, we are already getting a lot of feedback, but I want to get way more feedback. So if mm. people like connect to my blog and like, post your questions, that would be great. Yeah. It, it Actually, it looked like you had a really good team of people doing the work as well, so I was really pleased to see that. That's, uh, that's yep. great. Actually, yeah, I'm one of the other familiar people is uh, Richard Waymire, of course, who is yes. uh, on our team. <laughs> And so he's a familiar face in the SQL Server community. So yes, indeed, um, old friend Richard. So yes, he, he hasn't been out to Australia for a while, but uh, yeah, he used to come out occasionally. So we we certainly got to know yeah. him some years back. So yeah, it's a great guy. So now it was good to see those sort of people on the team. So I, I I certainly had high hopes for the team. So that's outstanding. So um, apart from that, uh, I suppose, is there anything else coming up in your world you want to mention? But uh, I, I presume this is the main thing. Yeah, right now my world evolves around uh, what's going on in, inside the Visual Studio land. It's like, of course, we are... Uh, we're also working on the next release of Visual Studio, but it's like that goes all mm -hmm. in parallel. This is the main thing that we're trying to get done first. And um, yeah, trying to be the uh, make SQL Server a first-class citizen in Visual Studio. That's our main priority right now. <laughs> That's great. Well, listen, I'm really looking forward. To, I will certainly be at those sessions at TechEd unless I'm dragged off somewhere else to do something. And uh, uh, I must admit, I've, I've, I've mentioned in my blog, I drew the short straw. I've got the 8 a.m. Thursday speaking slot, so, uh, so I'll probably have a very tame crowd that morning. But uh, And uh, actually, fortunately, I've, I'll be back in Seattle um, the following week for the uh, the lab on this, uh, the internal sort of lab on this stuff. So I, I'm, I don't know if you'll be there as well for that. But, uh, yes, I will be there, uh, and I'll ah, see very you there. Good. <laughs> Indeed, so I'm really looking forward to getting some time with this product, so that's that's outstanding. So listen, thanks for spending the time with us today, Gert. That's just outstanding. No problem. It was a pleasure. That's tough.